Hello and welcome to the King's Fund podcast, where we talk about the big issues and ideas in health and care. I'm Anna Charles, Senior Policy Advisor here at the King's Fund and your host for this episode. Now, like many people at the moment, we at the King's Fund are working from home, which means we're recording this episode remotely. So please do excuse us if there are any unexpected background noises. You may know that the 1st of June marks the beginning of Volunteering Week 2020. This year, I think that's even more poignant than usual, given the amazing contribution volunteers have played in the response to COVID-19. So I'm really delighted to be joined remotely on this episode by the Chief Executive of the Royal Voluntary Service, Catherine Johnston. Catherine, welcome to the King's Fund podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And to kick us off, can you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? So uh, my career started in the NHS. I was a nurse and my specialisms were in A&E and ITU. So having been a nurse for uh, several years, um, I then rather foolishly or misguidedly had five children. And when we got to Project 2000 and um, it meant I had to do a week of earlies, a week of lates and a week of nights, it became impossible uh, to continue, for which I was very, very sad. However, one door closed and I left the NHS and I ended up in the charity sector, actually as the Chief Exec of Crossroads Caring for Carers. And uh, it was a privilege and I loved working um, in the health and care sector and there was a lot of parallels. So whilst it wasn't emergency medicine, it was caring for people and often for very vulnerable people. So Mm. I loved it. Um, And since then, I've had this is my seventh chief exec role over 24 years with the one just before Royal Voluntary Service being seven years at Samaritans. It's been quite an interesting journey for me. I never was a girl to have a five year plan. My career has evolved. I never, ever thought I'd be a chief exec of uh, what is now a £70 million turnover charity with thousands of staff and thousands and thousands of volunteers. And obviously none of us could have predicted what was going to happen with COVID. Although last year we did a piece of research called Kickstarting the Volunteer Revolution. And rather, unfortunately, I wrote in the introduction that actually volunteering always gets kickstarted at times of crisis. But Mm. short of a global pandemic or a war was what I put in the introduction. We would need to all work quite hard to mobilise volunteers in a different way. And here we are in 2020 writing history about a global pandemic and a revolution of volunteering that is happening around us. And good job that it is. So you predicted that and you're... Uh, it's, in a your... bit, it's a bit <laughs> scary. I'm not going to be allowed to write any more introductions going no, forward. No, no. Or... <laughs> I only write positive things in them if you do. Exactly, exactly. What what a fascinating journey you've been on. And I think um, seven chief exec roles might be a, a record for the podcast. So lots of lots of things for us to ask you about today. Of course, the NHS volunteer responders scheme that you mentioned there has grabbed the headlines over the last couple of months. So in March, I think we had a, a record 750,000 people signing up to volunteer in just a few weeks, even just a few days. And the response from the public there was just phenomenal. And as you say, the Royal Voluntary Service has been coordinating that scheme. That sounds like a pretty daunting task to me to mobilise and um, support all of those people. So what has it involved for you so far? So I'm not sure I'd call it daunting because actually everybody wants to do their best work when the chips are down. And Royal Voluntary Service, you know, I had an advantage um, in being able to design and then deliver NHS volunteer responders because my organisation was set up as part of the response to World War II 81 years ago. And therefore, 
we were constructed to mobilise in an emergency, in a crisis. The second thing is, is that we actually did design NHS responders. We wrote the programme and we were commissioned by, in the end, NHS England. We were asked to marshal 250,000 volunteers to actually deliver very practical tasks. And there were four tasks and there still are only four tasks. Check it in chat, which is about keeping people connected, checking in and make sure they're okay for people who are self-isolating. The second was community responder, and that is about being able to do practical picking up medication, doing shopping and various other practical tasks, all from social distancing perspective. And then the other two roles, one was transport role, and that was about getting patients who obviously have underlying health conditions to and from the hospital safely to undergo treatments like renal treatment, cancer treatment or routine appointments that they mustn't miss. And then the final role was actually a transport role for the NHS, which was about helping to mobilise the NHS to change the way in which it works or to deliver oxygen to patients at home so they could come home, gestational diabetes, testing kits to pregnant women who were shielding, you know, all of those sorts of activities. And the reason that we kept it a very practical task was because we knew we had to mobilise quickly and we knew we had to be very clear with people in the community as to what it was they would be required to do. Now, all of the planning for NHS responders went on in the two weeks before we received the first lockdown message. So when we were designing this, it was only meant to be for the about 1.5 million people who were going to be asked to shield for a longer, longer period. During that setup time, we then discovered that the whole country was going to be in lockdown. So I think where the phenomenon came was that suddenly everybody was in lockdown and two things happened. One was people had a lot of time on their hands and they were sort of looking for things to do. But then secondly, they wanted to create hope. They wanted Mm. to do something. And actually shielding the NHS was a universal call. So we went out uh, with the very clear ask, step forward, support very vulnerable people who need to be shielded over the longer term from coronavirus and also in turn help us to shield the NHS. And in four days, we signed up 750,000 individuals. I mean, that's really interesting. And I'm going to come back actually in a bit more detail to ask you about that. I did just want to follow up in terms of the um, NHS volunteer responders scheme. Like you say, there was a lot of sort of love and affection for the scheme uh, immediately. And people were sort of overwhelmed by the response that they saw and, and what that represented. But then a few weeks in, there were some concerns raised about uh, people who'd put themselves forward and didn't feel they had tasks to do. So can you say a bit about what that was all about and and what you learned through through that time? Yeah, so the lens you're talking about is the utilisation of volunteers. Mm -hmm. Um, And ever it was thus, so if you have too few, You can't actually be a responsive, resilient service that people can rely on. And if you have too many, then you you are perceived to have Mm underutilisation. So in the early days, I mean, despite the fact that we were climbing by about anywhere between three and five thousand referrals a day and a week on, you know, we were doing thousands and thousands of tasks every day. Obviously, 750,000 people had stepped forward and they all wanted to have a go. Yeah, um, yeah. So we've done lots of messaging out and we have a way of, of directly messaging all of the volunteers who step forward and who are signed on um, and stand ready for duty. The fact that not everybody is being called on 
is actually a good thing. Yeah, so <laughs> it was a, a case of the demand not being there yeah, rather than yeah. the message not getting through. Exactly. So, um, and, and to a degree, we've got more confident with that message as the system has got more confident in referring in the right way. So with any new system, it takes a while for the referral pathways to open up and get get utilised. Mm-hmm. And we did get off to quite a slow start. And I, uh, the turning point for me was about a week in when a GP contacted me and he said, and I won't, I won't share his name, but he said to me, um, I just wanted to share the fact that um, when I first saw this scheme come across my desktop in a, in a really busy GP practice and remembering the whole system is under pressure and rarely does a system under pressure want new stuff. It just wants to be able to do the familiar and get it done. Mm-hmm. So absolutely recognising um, that, that it was a challenging time. He said he rolled his eyes <laughs> and he thought, oh, my God, not another centrally driven waste of public money. And he said he thought that until bank holiday weekend when he had forgotten to send a a prescription for a very Mm. vulnerable patient. And he thought, well, I've got nothing to lose. So he logged on. And within two hours, the volunteer turned up at the surgery, picked up the script, took it to the on-call pharmacist, got it and then delivered it to the patient within three hours of them establishing that there'd been a mistake. And actually, he has heavily utilised the scheme ever since because it's immediate. It's clear about what can and can't be done. We've now opened up to self-referrals. So actually, you can just give your patient the number and they'll come into the call centre and we'll walk them through everything and make sure they're comfortable and set up and that they're uh, being cared for and supported in the right way. In the early days, we wanted all of the people being referred in to be connected to a healthcare provider their mm-hmm. healthcare provider, because originally the cohort of patients were the 1.5 million most vulnerable. It's a broader cohort of people who can be referred in now, and it's a much broader referral pathway, including national charities, condition-specific charities, and it's basically those who are clinically vulnerable or who have become vulnerable as a result of COVID. And to a degree, some of that is also about um, diminishing mental health, uh, low levels of depression, disconnectedness, bereavement, uh, and all the other things that we know will happen and continue to happen during the pandemic. It's really fascinating hearing you talking about it. And if you didn't know the scenario, you could easily think that you were talking about something that had been running for a year or more, because it sounds like a lot has evolved since it's been in existence. But of course, this is over a matter of weeks. And it's interesting to hear you talk about it from the sort of evolution on both sides of the equation. So the scheme is evolving and learning, but so are the people that are using it or, or working with Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And and the patients. So even with the self-referral, we've spoken to a lot of the people that are using it. You know, and if you suddenly got a letter that said, uh, you know, you have been identified by your healthcare professional as needing to shield, you know, you're perhaps in your mid-60s, you, you go to work normally. And I'm thinking of one particular guy who actually said on a radio interview that we were doing together, he said, it took me 10 days before I could pluck up the courage and mm. swallow my pride enough to actually ask for any help. And he said, and actually, NHS Volunteer Responders has been a godsend. He said, because what I was able to do is that I was able to self-refer myself in. I didn't have to bother my busy GP. I didn't have to go to the pharmacist. I didn't have to venture out of the door. And when I spoke to the call centre, I wasn't treated as a victim. I was treated as somebody who, because of this unexpected pandemic, found myself in very changed circumstances very suddenly. And therefore, I could still take control of my own health care 
it's just I needed a bit of help. One of the things you mentioned there, Catherine, was around um, the sort of national volunteering schemes versus local community organising. And obviously, alongside everything that you've just been talking about, we've also seen a big move over the last couple of months to uh, local groups emerging organically in local communities to offer support and mutual aid. So do you think there's learning that we can take from this period of time about the different merits of big national volunteering schemes versus those sorts of local community organising. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think both are fantastic and I've worked in both. The, the two are not mutually exclusive. And the trick is, is, is to have both, particularly during a crisis. So let me give you an example. Um, I can look across my map that I can now see of all the green volunteers dancing up and down when I, they turn their apps on saying, we're ready, we're ready to support. And in one area, in one day, I might get 43% of them mobilised mm-hmm. um, across all four roles um, in that locality. But that's not to say that tomorrow will be the same. And and therefore, you know, it, it, the, the supply and demand needs to balance each other out. And I will always say that you need more supply than demand, mm-hmm. because otherwise you're not building a resilient system. So it's not something like people two, can rely on. Yeah. No, yeah. no. And, and that's not meaning it's disingenuously, because at the beginning of COVID, we saw and we are still seeing the most extraordinary WhatsApp groups, mutual aid, mm-hmm. uh, local council for voluntary services stepping forward, you know, and the whole gamut of you know, voluntary community sector organisations of, you know, often doing their very, very best work with very little resources. But the thing about um, the NHS part of this equation is that often what you are going to need is you're going to need long-term support, and I mean sort of 9 to 12 months minimum. You're going to need it once or twice a week. So rarely does a a referral come in for just a one-off task. Mm. You know, somebody needs shopping this week, they're likely to need it next week. If someone needs a check-in and chat this week, they might need two this week, they might need three next week, they might need one the week after. You know, so what we've got to be able to do is make sure that the national scheme can complement the local resilience fora, the local public health teams. Yeah, um, so moving forward, it's about moving, the two yeah. in tandem being complementary. Yeah. yeah. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about was around the sort of role in terms of supporting people through loneliness and isolation, because obviously COVID-19 and social distancing are putting real pressures on people must be having a significant impact on people's mental health and well-being and the social contact and support available to them. And you mentioned already one of the NHS volunteer responder roles is the check-in and chat role. And obviously you have huge experience from your was it seven years as Chief Executive of Samaritans. So drawing on all of that experience, can you tell us a bit about the importance of support at this time and, and what that looks like? Yeah, so... Um... So I personally hate this term loneliness because it's been coined as part of our society now and it's sort of a badge or a label that is put on people. Obviously, you know, the things about loneliness is that um, it's about disconnectedness. It's about social and or physical isolation. Yeah. And therefore, the work that Royal Voluntary Service tries to do is about bringing people together. It's about empowering people to reconnect so checking in chat is basically a well-practiced, well-versed initiative that existed before COVID. 
And it literally is about giving people the opportunity to connect with another human being on an equal level to have a chat about whatever is bothering them. Our check-in and chat is not designed to be a Samaritan's listener. Mm-hmm. It's not designed to be a mental health intervention. It is about bringing people together so that they can talk about what's going on in their lives. And actually out of that, it will be of no surprise that sometimes comes safeguarding issues. So those get referred in. Mm-hmm. Sometimes comes just that total relief that it's the first time in a week that they've actually been able to speak to someone. And that could that, that doesn't necessarily is not necessarily dictated by somebody being lonely and old, which is often the stereotypical label that's put on it. You can have lots and lots of young people. You can have pregnant women for whom it's their first first baby. I spoke to um, a lady last week. Her husband is on the front line in the NHS, so he's not at home. Mm. He works very long hours, so they might get a bedtime call once or twice a week. And the rest of the time, she is sitting at home, preoccupied with being pregnant. She's got gestational diabetes and she's worrying herself witness about giving birth in what will now be three weeks time in a hospital, Mm. (laughs) possibly with or without her husband. You know, so she she would fall into the category of being lonely. She would get that low label. But actually, it's not that she's lonely. It's that she's lacking connectedness. Yes. Both to her own network and to any other human being. So just being able to have a chat once or twice a week with somebody else who's going through COVID in a slightly different way actually reinvigorates. It allows you to vent. It allows you to share what's worrying you. It doesn't necessarily have to have an intervention that follows. It's a Um, connection. It's about the connection, yeah. And then we've also now developed something called the Enhanced Check-In and Chat. And that was in recognition that actually a lot of people who are finding the disconnectedness incredibly difficult are people who either have dementia or some form of cognitive impairment and or are caring for, so are a carer of somebody in that situation. So we have an Enhanced Check-In and Chat, which is trained to a higher level now, Mm-hmm. Um, and it just enables people to be able to go that little bit further with the check-in and chat call and be able to approach the conversation, say with somebody with early onset dementia, in a way that actually helps them to engage properly in the call. So, And we're particularly pleased with that because it's also allowed us to open up some mental health path- referral pathways as so well. So there's more examples of how it's evolved as you've, yes. as you've gone yeah. forward. I'm just going to move us on now to talk a bit about volunteering more generally, so outside the COVID-19 pandemic, because like you've already mentioned, before this point in time, volunteers were already playing an increasing role in in health and care settings. So can you tell us a bit about the different sorts of volunteer roles there are within those settings and what you think from your experience that volunteers bring to the health and care system or, or could bring going forward? Yeah. If you take Royal Voluntary Services example, so we are 81 years old this year and we have been working inside the NHS since the NHS's inception. So in some cases, my volunteers were in the hospitals before they were designated as hospitals and actually were were sort of the welcoming party as the NHS opened. That's Um, an amazing history to have. So so volunteering is not new in the NHS. I think that's the first thing to point uh, point out. I think it has changed and evolved significantly and it's seen and valued in very different ways. So a lot of, let's take uh, acute trusts at the moment as a starter then, a lot of acute trusts will use volunteers for supporting people in clinics 
welcome and logistics, transport, home from hospital, on-ward support, mobilisation, trolleys. Trolley services are, are massive. You know, all of those sorts of things. So it's a real mixed economy in the trust. Mm-hmm. And then if you go out into the community and you look across STPs and GP practices um, and the wider integrated care space, social prescribing saw a lot of volunteer initiatives yeah. uh, step forward. You've got initiatives like Compassionate Communities. You know, There's no shortage of volunteering activity across the health and care system I think the challenge is is that because it is so disparate and so different in every area it makes it really difficult for volunteers in a community to actually engage formally and get a a consistent shared experience and the thing about volunteering it doesn't matter what the setting is is people want to feel that they belong They want to have pride in their volunteering and pride is a two way thing. You have to be recognised by the thing you are volunteering with. Many hospitals, many um, primary care practices and things hold annual volunteer award ceremonies. It's about that two way connection and the value that is placed upon it. Mm. So that varies hugely. And one of the things that that then leads to is an inconsistent recruitment onboarding and retention and training Mm, mm. and volunteers who don't have any of those good experiences actually really struggle to do a good volunteering role within a setting because it's about setting expectations the NHS is always under pressure and therefore there's a lot that could be learnt from community responders in the ambulance trusts to the clinical volunteers say from St John's Ambulance for various other initiatives that have happened across uh, social prescribing about the best ways to onboard and recruit and retain volunteers. There's there's an argument that says that we should do that nationally. Why does every trust, every primary care initiative want to set up something new? Because Mm -hmm. volunteers who are working with vulnerable people will need to have their DBS checks or their PVG in Scotland checks. They'll need some training. They'll need some induction. And when you've got busy systems and a system that's under pressure, creating enough space to be able to do that in a consistent way and having enough resources to do it means that I think the reason why NHS Responders is getting traction is because it's been done consistently from centre. It doesn't detract from the influence at local or the fact that they're local volunteers and the fact that it's a GP pressing a button in the practice, having made a decision about their patient. But there is some infrastructure to, to support it. To support yeah. it. So thinking about the longer term then, we've talked a lot about the uh, sort of amazing things that have happened over the last couple of months. So what do you think needs to be done or can be done to capitalise on the really widespread community engagement we've seen during this period? How can we ensure that the benefits last beyond this current crisis, however long that lasts for, and into the much longer term? So uh, I think we've all got our our part to play in this. This is a very different way of mobilising volunteers. And we've demonstrated it can be done at pace and scale very successfully. What I'm saying consistently is we need to take the best learning and we need to work collaboratively to look at the longer term. And the longer term for me is the next year, because this scheme is here to shield the NHS and the very vulnerable patients. That cohort of patients and the system is going to be under continued changing pressure. So what we're doing with the NHS volunteer responders is continuing to share how it works, 
going out as far and as wide as we can in the healthcare systems and saying it's here. You don't have to use it today or tomorrow, but in three months time, you may you remember it's there as part of your recovery services in health. And, and you know, we will be standing ready, as will you know, thousands and thousands of volunteers in your area. I think pre-COVID, the NHS and its wider uh, health systems have struggled to embed volunteering at the heart. And there's been a lot of work going on over the last five years in the five year forward view and other plans uh, with the STPs and everything else to look at how can we utilise volunteers uh, more effectively and efficiently. But we've, we've got to make a, a decision culturally that actually we're going to take volunteering and, you know, the really horrible pandemic. One of the good things that can emerge from this is that the, the NHS systems actually are going to mm. commit to actually embedding volunteering and that will look different in different places but I think the case that has been won is that some central coordination some being clear about what are the tasks the right training the right opportunities some of it will could continue to be dynamic and micro volunteering like with mm. NHS responders others could be longer term, more a one-on-one volunteering, could be run out of GP practices. You know, so there's all sorts of opportunities. So it sounds like there could be a lasting legacy, both in terms of numbers of people coming forward to volunteer, but also in the way you're talking there about the way that the health and care system and local government actually work with organisations like yourselves. So we're nearly out of time, but um, I did want to ask you uh, a final question, Catherine, which is that we've been talking to lots of leaders across health and care and beyond about how they've looked after their own well-being while leading through the COVID-19 pandemic. So could you share any top tips for our listeners? Oh, my goodness. Well, I have a big family. I have five children. I have two grandchildren. So regular updates with my grandchildren, a daily call is the thing at the end of very long days, as all of us have had, that's lifted my heart. And I think finding a way to connect with your most nearest and dearest has certainly helped me, um, even if it's only been for very short you know, moments in time across the weeks and months as it is now. I think the second thing is I quite like yoga. So I bought my yoga mat out into my uh, home office quite early on. And then I'm a big baker. Um, and baking has always been my go-to. And you can tell how stressed I am by how complicated the cake is. So there's been a few six-layer multicoloured angel cakes during COVID, which obviously everybody's enjoyed. Finding time to bake them has been a challenge, but it's also been a lot of bread baked because you can make it up and then get, go away and do your work and go back and prove once it's proved and things. So oh, lovely. Uh, I'm also surrounded by really fabulous people. And I think, you know, a pandemic, a crisis, whatever it is, the thing I learned when I was working in A&E is that it's the people that make the difference, the systems, the processes, the, the the rules, you know, they're all there for a reason, but people helping people is why we need to be so proud, A, of our country and of our volunteers, but also of our NHS. Well, thank you, Catherine, for joining us today. And thank you to all the volunteers out there who are making a fantastic contribution, not only in the response to COVID-19, but all year round. That's it from us. You can find the show notes for this episode and all our previous episodes at www.kingsfund.org.uk forward slash KF podcast. 
Thanks as always to our podcast team, our producers Ian Ford and Sarah Murphy and our researcher Jonathan Holmes. And thank you to you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts because it helps us to improve the show and it helps others to find us. And we hope you can join us next time.